Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus the Contractor's Life. It is an unscripted, free-flow, no-axe-to-grind podcast that explores the off-the-market world of overseas private security contracting and the private contracting world as a whole. From Washington State, I'm your host, folks, Scott Dresser. My guest for this episode is Mike Ritchie. You may recall him from an earlier episode, if you caught that one. I believe that was episode 35. Uh, Mike's a former member of the United States Navy. He's worked overseas as a private security contractor uh, for multiple companies, similarly so here in the U.S. Uh, Prior to and since, uh, he ended his overseas contracting, uh, I believe that was 2013, uh, he's the owner of Survival Mindset, an instruction and training company based in California. With that said, Mike Ritchie, my friend, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, Scott. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, love it. Um, you know, we after a- the first one, I was toast, but you know, <laughs> everybody gets a second chance, right? Yeah. Well, the second wind here, right? Yeah. Uh, there the, you go. Yeah. No, uh, we had a great conversation the first time, and uh, we've had a lot of conversations offline uh, before and in between, and I'm sure we'll have great many more. Um, you got some fabulous stories, both here in the U.S. and overseas. Um, <clears throat> Now, how much some of them have to do with overseas contracting is might be a matter of debate, but they're great stories, man. And I think they do tie in, a lot of them. Um, but with that said, uh, if, if we can, before we start, go too far, if you can uh, recap for the folks that are listening uh, who you are, what you are, and what you did uh, both before you became a contractor and then after you became a contractor. Um, so this might so for folks that are listening, it might be a repeat. But you know, for anybody that doesn't know, just cover down on it real quick. Well, as you said, I was in the I was in the Navy for a few years. Uh, worked on a few different submarines. Uh, when I got out of the Navy, I kind of bounced around a little bit. wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, went into the medical field and uh, became a medic. And I've had a pretty good career with that. Worked uh, in and out of security for most of my adult life. I've been a, uh, a correctional officer in a maximum security penitentiary. Um, I've worked security at multiple um, aerospace companies, uh, most recently Northrop Grumman. And that was right before uh, I started overseas contracting. Hmm. I was actually a contractor at Northrop. I worked for a, a company that was contracted by Northrop Grumman to provide security and, and security personnel. Hmm. But that was interesting. Yeah, interesting is a good word. It's um, <laughs> it's a strange place to work. Um, huh. Aerospace in general. Um, I worked on the space shuttle program for about nine years. I had a great time doing that with Boeing. Um, wow, nine going, years. Going back, yeah, going back into security with Northrop and and a couple other companies. Um, it, it's really odd. You know, you, you have these facilities that have secret, top secret, and better clearances. <clears throat> And you have people that just have absolutely no concept of security. Hmm. You know, they want to they want to tailgate through secured doors. You know, they don't want to wait for a gate to open. Right. You know, it's just just crazy stuff. So, so when I got there, I had to rebuild the entire uh, security suite. You know, the, the card readers and the operated gates and things like that it just made wow. everybody mad. So it was it was a lot of fun though. Oh yeah, um, people that think they belong there really don't like to be impeded or intruded with their progress coming and going do they not at all i mean it doesn't matter if it's overseas or here in the states uh but i gotta ask you you know are these places 
um, like Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and you know, and there's plenty of other companies out there that are in the aerospace and defense industries. But when you drive by the facilities, um, whether it's on the freeway or one of the roads that accesses them, uh, and you look over, they look so quiet, serene, and sterile. I mean, is is that a pretty good summation? Yeah, I, I think in, in today's market it is. Um, when I first started in aerospace, I, I worked for Rockwell, and uh, they were still building space shuttle parts. So, hmm. they, you know, we had the um, – it was called the high bay area and you know they were just they were building all kinds of stuff back there they still did a lot of testing on on different materials and paints and things like that but there was one particular shop that was still building by hand wiring harnesses that went hmm. into the space shuttles so you know there was like five thousand people working there and you know tons of cars in the parking lot and um you know buildings scattered over about a, a square mile and a half of area uh in the town that i live in and it, it was it was very active. You know, you could look in there and you could see people walking around all the time, going from building to building. Hmm. But a lot of aerospace companies and, and um, Northrop Grumman in particular have gone to more of like a, a campus setting. And, you know, they, because of the changing, uh, changing demographic of aerospace workers, you know, you, you have these young, younger guys coming in, you know, they're more computer savvy and things like that. And they're more comfortable in a campus setting. Hmm. So you look at it and there might be 3000 people working there, but you know, they go in, they go in their building and they go to work and you don't see them again until lunchtime. Hmm. So campus, you mean, so for, you know, visionary purposes, people that are listening, me too, I guess. Um, like you, a, like a college, like a college okay. campus. Interesting. Huh? You know, cause when you, when you think of campus, uh, in terms of corporate culture, I've seen it at a few places, Nintendo and Microsoft. Um, that's very, that's, that was the first time I saw, what people meant by a campus culture is mm -hmm. like interesting <laughs> you know well, and, and, go ahead well one of the companies i worked for uh bae systems it, it was uh used to be lear astronics you know from the lear jet and and huh. um you know the guy that developed the the three-axis autopilot and, and all that bill lear um it was just in a in a nondescript building but we had nine floors in there you know we had laboratories and and um sound testing facilities and and you know just everything and and you look at the building and it's like any office building hmm. so it's a lot more nondescript i guess than it, than it used to be so it, now would you say that that's part of the security plan or part of the security structure is to blend things in so that it look because you see that it's uh, some of the uh, uh, military bases here in the U.S. You know, you drive by it; it's just very nondescript, and if you really weren't paying attention, you, it would kind of blend in. Yeah, Is, I think so. I mean, you know, the easiest way to or the best way to hide something is in plain sight. Yeah, <laughs> you know, your intelligence counterintelligence guys would tell you that all the Los time. Angeles Air Force Base. If you blink, you wouldn't even know it was there. Wow. Huh. Okay. You know, it's fascinating. Now, you've done a lot of things. And you mentioned in one conversation you and I had that you at one time, I mean, you're in the, you were in, and I, and I think you're still dabbling at the aerospace defense industry, but you had a pilot's license at one point, right? At uh, one point, a long time ago. Well, but I'm just saying, I mean, you know, well-rounded guy. I mean, who would expect, I mean, you know, the, the stereotype of the, uh, you know, long beard knuckle dragger, right? I mean. Well, <laughs> I, I guess I would I would fit that stereotype if I could actually grow a beard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a lot of Native American blood in me. So, you know, I, 
I go without shaving for a week and a half, and my face is just starting to look dirty. <laughs> so That's... yeah, I don't, I don't actually fit the, you know, the the whole dirty contractor, you know, uh, <laughs> green schmog wrapped around my neck, you know, the, uh, a beard hanging to my chest. I just, yeah, it's just not me, you know. <laughs> and your Maui gyms or your Oakleys. Right? Oakleys, man, gotta yeah. wear Oakleys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially if you get them if you get them on the on the SI deal, you know, it's a lot cheaper. Right? Um, yeah, I threw out the Maui gyms just because I, you know, not a lot of guys wear those, but at some of the higher levels, you'll see them. It's a cool guy thing. I I think I first when I saw that in the movie uh, Thirteen Hours, I went Maui Jim. Wow, Maui gyms, those are cool. I actually <laughs> still have a pair of those out in the truck somewhere, but yeah. I get, I get a discount on Oakley's. <laughs> right. Now, Oakley's have always served me real well. I mean, I've done them, you know, I've wore a lot of them. But um, uh, anyway, uh, I digressed a little bit. But uh, so, so the, so the, so what is, I, I got to ask, I think I've asked you this before, and maybe I don't remember, but what is, in your experience, in uh, the biggest concern from a security standpoint at, at these facilities, whether it's, at the, whether it's the corporate manager's concern or the security guy's concern. What's the, what's some of the biggest concerns that you guys have to deal with at a place like that? You mean here in the States? Yeah, yeah. Um, complete disregard for security protocols. Really? Yeah. You know, they just, they think they're just normal workers, you know, and even though they're they're on a facility that has, you know, a top secret security clearance and they might be developing, you know, the next generation of smart munitions or you know, the next generation of, uh, like the blue force tracker. Remember that? Mm-hmm. That was, that was developed at the facility that I worked at. Really? Um, yeah. And this stuff is, you know, it's, it's very sensitive, hmm. and, but they just, they, they have no concept uh, of, of what we see and, and how we, how we treat security. They just right. don't get it. You know, all they know is that, you know, somebody asked them a bunch of questions and they got a security clearance and they're not supposed to tell anybody anything. And that's, <laughs> that's pretty much where it ends. So when I first got to, to this facility at, at uh, Northrop in Carson over here in Southern California, um, the main gates were left open all day long hmm. because at some point someone had contracted a, a gate company and they came in and they put the wrong opener in it. And uh, it was rated for like eight cycles an hour and it should have been rated for like 800 cycles an hour. And, and hmm. you know, it just, it, fa- it failed. Right. So it, fa- it failed open. So they would close them in the evening all day long you know into this facility the the gates were wide open and that's one of the things i changed i i completely rebuilt the the security system there you know had all the fences repaired all the pass-through doors fixed the badge readers were you know some were not functioning and then put protocols into place where we had we were supposed to track the movement of everybody in that facility through their badge we didn't use facial recognition or anything like that it was just when you badged into a door we knew who was in the building. Gotcha. So one guy would badge in and five guys would walk through the door, hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, so we had to put our foot down on, on just little stupid stuff like that, you know, stuff, stuff to us that goes, uh, you know, <laughs> it just kind of go, could it be? right, right, right. So did, did you meet, um, with resistance from say the management and the executives on that sort of thing, or were they pretty much like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Go ahead and do it. Um, p- 
part of the executive management was the driving force behind it because we had to go to them for the money. I spent almost a quarter of a million dollars to do this. Mm. Um, but like mid-level managers, oh man, <laughs> mm. just hated it. Okay. When I when I got the main gate working from fully closed to fully open was less than thirteen seconds. Wow. And people just lost their minds. You know. <laughs> You're, you're making me late for my meeting. It's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. you know, leave your house five minutes earlier. <laughs> right? Oh, man. That is... In, in, how many times have we view. heard that, right? Oh, God, I know. <laughs> like, you're making me late. Okay, sorry. <laughs> right. I'm trying to keep you safe. And, right. and, you know, the thing was that, you know, a lot of this was, was after, obviously, after 9-11. And uh, we had... Um, uh, a local college that had a very large um, Middle Eastern population, the student body. And, um, you know, I just, I, I try to tell them, it's like, you have to understand these people are here, you know, and, and when a drone strike happens, you know, the first thing they think of is Northrop or Boeing and, mm. you know, take out somebody's family member and, you know, they're right down the road and there's a U-Haul place right next door, and, you know, mm. do the math. And you drive a, a truck full of explosives through an open gate past a guard that's unarmed and mm. park it right in the middle and light it off. You know, how many people are you going to lose? Right. And so, you know, we kind of had to had to do the tough love thing with them. Right. To get them to understand. But, you know. Well, you're, you're a lot better at that than I am, I'm sure, because. Um, no, not. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Look, I'm just saying no, because I, I tend to either just roll my eyes and turn around and walk away, you know, because like, you know, if I got to explain it to you, you know, um, that, or I'll just sit there and, you know, say the things that are not very PC and get myself in trouble. <laughs> no, that's what I did. That's what I did too. And I was in trouble a lot, you know, <laughs> I, I start knife handing people and it's like, <laughs> 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 you know, it comes after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Okay. You know, do I have to kill you to make you, <laughs> to make you understand this? Sometimes, right? Oh man. Sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, it was like I said, it was a it was an interesting place to work. Um the people for the most part were purple. Um I worked with a a guy, our our facility security officer was a um a retired SWAT sergeant. Hmm. And uh he was old school. You know, he talked about uh, polyester shirts and Vanlon slacks. It's like, mm. oh, my God, how old are you? you know? mm. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was all about it. You know, when they when we first redid the security structure, um, they didn't want us to be armed. And it's like, oh, that's kind of stupid. And why are we here? You know? Right. Yeah. I can bring a, I can bring a guy in for nine dollars an hour to observe and report. You know, that's easy. Right. Oh yeah, no man, I, I I get that all the well, I shouldn't say all the time, but I get it a lot. It's kind of like I say, well, it's a deal breaker. I said, I don't leave my house without my gun. I said, why would yeah. I work without it? I said, right, exactly. I said it's a deal breaker. I said, yeah, I said, it's not a big deal for me if you don't want that, but I'm just telling you, I ain't working without it. Um, well, you know, like I said at first, it, it was they were highly resistant, you know, but within a couple of months, we had a gun safe in there with you know semi-automatic weapons and shotguns and less lethal and hmm. you know some other some other toys in there that we, that we got to play with but uh it all worked out right know? yeah people well, still freak out though you know oh uh, yeah i'm sure they they do but i mean i thought it was interesting and and that's so such an integral huge thing that um uh, probably gets lost in a lot of people uh but at at the security level 
if you have the support, like you said you did, of the executive management, it, it just makes things a lot smoother because you, oh, know, yeah. you can yeah, walk around. You don't feel hemmed in. You don't feel like someone's looking over your shoulder and you're doing something wrong. It's kind of like, hey, dude, you know, I mean, like I used to, you know, if you don't like it, go talk to the general. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. You know, and at first, you know, we're, we're walking around, you know, we're all wearing, you know, the Northrop Grumman little jackets and stuff like that and after a while you know we're all in tactical gear and and you know exposed weapons and you know it's just it's just how it evolved right. and <clears throat> making them understand that you know security is more than um, a warm body in a in an ill-fitting uniform you know without <laughs> a gun <laughs> you know? that's fine but yeah. you know even even in california i don't know how it is in washington but man i tell you what it's so weird down here I've been trying for five years to get a concealed weapons permit in Los Angeles County. And I'm finally picking it up tomorrow. Five years. And five years, you know. Um, but if you want to be an armed security guard, literally, if you show up, if you don't have a criminal record, you have a, a halfway decent pulse, and you can hit a paper target from seven yards, they'll give you a gun. Wow. You know? And that's all. The, no training. No mm. training other than... You know, the, the the initial training you have to take watching a – I think I, I watched a video when I first did it. The video had to be from, like, the early 80s. This dude had on, the, you know, the big uh, plastic rim glasses, you know, and he had the big porn mustache. <laughs> pulled his, he's, he's talking to this group of people, and he literally pulled his gun out of his holster, his revolver, by the way, mm. out of his holster like six times, you know, while wow. he's standing in front of this group of people. and You know, and it's like – he was cussing during the video and, and he's making these, you know, these sexual innuendo remarks to the females that are in the rooms. Like, good Lord. Where you? <laughs> wow. This is from wow. a different time. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's funny. You, um, you know, uh, it's, we, one of the things, there's a number of things we'll cover down on uh, here uh, real soon, but I, I just want, you know, the, the acts of stupidity or brain farts, whatever you want to call it seems to know, no bounds anywhere around the world, but especially in the U.S. market. And I'm just saying, when it comes to security, that you know, how many times have we seen that sort of thing? Uh, I mean, we've seen those egregious things. I mean, like working at a government facility here in the U.S. and in the lobby. This actually happened, by the way. Um, I walked in after because I was, you know, it was shift work. I come in and the people are telling me all about it. And this guy's got the, oh, crap, that I get my ass handed to me look on his face. And I'm like, what did he do? And they told me he wanted to demonstrate how to properly clear and unload a weapon in the lobby on duty with, nice. with client. Per yeah. So he pulls it out, you know, and it's like, I'm, yeah. and it's like, you know, and doing his thing. I was like, oh, my Lord. Now, this is the same dude, by the way, and I won't go into the other one, but he's the same guy that, and I've had a number of these. It doesn't happen very much anymore. Tried to convince me. He was one of those black hat guys in Vietnam, okay, oh, yeah. that went across lines that they're not supposed to be, but he couldn't go into detail about it. Okay, yeah, sure. whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm just, oh, my God. Anyway. Um, now he has a multicolored unicorn yeah. ranch in <laughs> South America. Oh, uh, so yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I understand, I guess, you know, I understand why, you know, you've talked to, I'm sure your share of people when you ask them, you know, why do you think that? Why, why are you worried about it? And then you hear enough of these 
uh, clients, potential clients, tell you why, and it's like, yeah, okay, I get it, because uh, that is their stereotype vision of United States security is that kind of guy. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, you know, and it's evolved, too, um, you know, like everything else. Security used to be, you know, just get a big guy. You know, if he's 6'4 and, you know, weighs 250 pounds and, he, you know, he can lift up the back of a Toyota, he must be great at being a bodyguard or, you yep. know, close protection officer. Oh, they still do. Yeah. And, and then you have, you know, your um, your real-life Tier 1 operators that come out and, and actually, you know, go to work for high-level clients. And they're actually doing, you know, global security and flying in and doing advances and, and you know, protecting people that need to be protected. Right. And then you have... And then you have the difference in the clients. You know, you have clients that absolutely need protection because, you know, whatever they do is, is, uh, you know, clandestine or, you know, it irritates or angers people and, and they need protection. Right. Oh, yeah. And then you have the clients that, you know, just want to show off. It's like, yeah, I have a security team. You know, they have absolutely no threat at all. <laughs> but, you know, they have these four square headed you know, gun, gun toters walking around with them all the time and, and it makes them feel better. Right. You know? right. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, uh, they call that vanity security or yeah, some vanity yeah. security, you right. know, and, and all, right. and all the agents are pretty, you know, they're all six foot two and, you know, perfectly cut hair and, you know, they're all muscular and wearing the right clothes and white right teeth, and blonde yeah. hair, blue yeah. eyes, stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, yeah. Um, yeah, there's no shortage of that as well. Um, you and know, it could and, be great in a firefight. You never know. Right. Yeah. No, until you, until you've had a chance to talk with the person, you know, and you have those offline conversations, just two people talk and then you go, Oh, okay. No, he's cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And then other times it's like, okay, yeah. All right. Next. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, come back to your security guys. You have after the tier one operators, you have the wannabes and, and we get these guys oh. all the time. Oh, th yeah. Thank you for opening that door. Now, you and I were Especially talking. Especially here. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we, uh, yeah, there's no shortage of stories um, and anecdotes for that one. Oh, God, um, no. But you've got, well, I don't know if you want to, if you want to divulge it or go into it, but I mean, you know, there's all kinds of them, but one of them is, uh, you know, guys uh, to some extent girls but for the most part the guys and the fascination with weapons and caliber and and you know all the kit that's that adorns it oh, and uh, yeah you know well you it, know you still have you still have the caliber argument you know you have the guys uh, you know i don't go into anything without you know a gun that starts with a four it's like okay whatever you know have you looked at ballistics you know have you seen what's happening with like modern you know weapon technology and all that I don't care what somebody carries. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, the mafia used to whack people in the back of the head with a twenty-two. Yep. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, From what I understand, it's still the uh, assassin's choice. Uh, it's, it's a great gun. It's easy to carry. the The ammunition is small and it's highly effective. You know, in close quarters, even. You know, twenty-two long rifle with a decent scope. You could you could put somebody's lights out from you know hundred yards away yep. easily. Yeah, well, yeah. and from what I understand, and, and uh, you know, don't quote me on this because I've never tried it, but uh, from what I understand, that one of the one of the selling points behind the twenty-two caliber that these guys, one of the reasons it's it's the it's the caliber of choice, is that it's fair, you know, for for all intents and purposes, depending on distances and where you hit them, but it it, it won't over penetrate. It'll go in and it stays right. there, and right. so you don't right. got to worry about blood splatter and and body parts everywhere, and just you know, it's quote unquote a, a clean mess. 
you know just goes in and does the job well that's why the <laughs> that's why the mafia used it behind the ear you know that way the guy's mom could still have an open open casket funeral huh. for him you know i think i've heard um, that and then uh who was the guy um the guy here richard ramirez the guy in los angeles the serial killer hmm. most of his gun kills were the 22 so huh. so having said all that um as a medic, I can tell you that penetrating trauma doesn't really care what caliber gun you carry as long as your shot placement is good. There you go. Yeah, uh, yep. that's really all that matters. So, I was going to say, can the guy right, hit the you know, target? But you, yeah, 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 exactly. You know, but you know, like you're talking about with kit and caliber and all that stuff. You know, we get people out at the out at the range. You know, going through our CCW courses and all. That. We call him Tactical Timmy. You know, it, it's a <laughs> it's a, it's a CCW class. All right. So, you know, our contention is you should dress the way that you dress when you go out in public so you can learn how to use your concealed weapon. And, you know, we start you out with an, uh, an outside the waistband holster and a position that you think you want to carry your weapon in. And you get used to drawing from that position. And then we transition into concealment garments and stuff like that. But, you know, these guys show up, they're wearing 511 from head to toe, you know, boots and pants and shirts mm. and hats. And, you know, they got their Oakleys on and, you know, a pair of gloves in the back pocket and all this like, wow, oh, OK. <laughs> and you know, two thousand dollar handgun, they couldn't hit the side of a mountain with it. Wow! You know, <clears throat> I, I, on the occasion when I talk with guys that that um, uh, here in my state, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys that do instruction, but the ones that probably get the the the, the fairer share are the guys that what we call the CJTC guys, the guys that are uh, criminal justice training certified. Uh, you know, that that all private security guards have to go through here in the state of Washington. Yeah. And, and, and the horror stories that they tell to this day, they say it's a daily thing, Scott. We, we see it every day, all the time, you know, the stupid blunders, the brain farts oh, yeah. and it's, you know, and, and they say, and it's not, and they say, uh, they're starting to see a lot of it in the military. I said, well, really? They go, yeah. And they say, you know why? I said, I don't. They say, because, uh, most of them aren't trained to use their pistol. It's a secondary weapon. Their primary weapon right. is, is the one that, that it said they're, they're wonderful with that. They're golden. So it comes to the pistol. Look out. It's another story. I said, really? They go, yeah. Okay. So I, yeah. I kind of understand, you know, um, but it, it comes down to, being shown how to properly do it by with somebody somebody that shows you the proper safety you know protocols and then how to how to handle it properly um yeah, but it takes a lot of a lot of practice does it not i mean you see well, it, you do it yeah i mean it absolutely does i mean I, i'm shooting you know two three times a month on average and um yeah, i still mess up sometimes you know it's like you get a magazine, you know, that doesn't have a good follower and you empty a magazine and it doesn't lock slide open and you reholster and you come out. Boy, that's a loud click. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, isn't it? Especially if you're in front of a class, you know, but, um, no, we do the same thing. We, we train, um, we train civilians, we train law enforcement, we train, uh, private security guards. Um, but we try to add, you know, a, another level to it. Like I was telling you, literally in California, you can go and sit down and take this ridiculous class and go to an indoor range, and they have you shoot, I think, I don't remember how many rounds it is. It's less than 50, and you have to be inside the seven ring, you know, on a B-27 target. Mm. How hard could it be? <clears throat> wow. You know, I saw a guy that came in to qualify is wearing this is a little bitty guy. Um 
he's wearing uh you know the full-on security guard uniform you know with the little dangly chains and everything and, mm. and he's carrying this big giant you know 357 wheel gun mm. and man when he pulled his target and it looked like he hit it with a shotgun really I mean, there, was just, there was just holes everywhere wow and, and they and they passed him I'm like okay right well but, let me ask you you see it and i've and i've I, I don't know if I've asked this question before, but what do you see more people carrying here in the States, uh, revolvers or pistols? No, they're they're carrying semi-autos. Um, okay. Now, is revolver, I mean, is that, I wouldn't say it's a thing of the past. You still see people with it, but, I mean, is that fairly uncommon anymore with police, law enforcement, private security? For work, I, you know, I've seen one guy um, since I, I caught home in 2013 and started working executive protection. And I saw one guy that was still carrying a revolver, and mm. he was a, a retired uh, LAPD lieutenant, and he still had his little snub-nosed thirty-eight in, in this little leather holster, and you could see the outline of, you know, the green patina from the rust? Mm. That thing hadn't been out of the holster in years. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, but this is the kind of guy or the type of individual that a lot of these security companies around here will hire because it's so difficult to get a concealed weapons permit. Huh. So they, they get their cops, you know, they have the HR 218 and they can carry concealed. These guys have no training in executive protection, no training in protective security. Uh, you know, and, and they're just, they're one step up from, you know, the, the mouth breathing, um, unarmed security guard. Right. You know, that's, and, a, I ha and I hate to say it because, you know, they're nice guys, but they're just, they're right. not the right guys. Yeah. You know? No, no. Hey, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I have tried, I don't, I've, I've given up now. I might get back into it here in the, some point in the future, but for a time I tried to convince people, uh, both at the political level, <clears throat> personal level, and at the department level, including department of licensing that look, you know, for private security guard, the guy that's going out doing the fire watch, the mall stuff, you know, arguably their training should be better than what it is right now with your qualification course. I said, but it's, it's, it's okay. I said, but, you know, you got the same guys going out and they're doing bodyguard, executive protection, and other kinds of work. I said, and, and you know, PIs, you know, and PIs aren't necessarily security guys, just like security guys aren't necessarily PI guys. I said, what right. makes them so damn good? I said, you know, I said, don't, I said, we should have a higher level of training, a higher threshold. If you're going to build yourself and put yourself out there as a high-level security guy doing bodyguard work, whether it's with a team or by yourself, there should be a much higher threshold for, for, for instruction and training on that. Uh, I said There should, but I'll tell you why there's not. And it's really simple, and we saw it in overseas contracting as well. It used to be you hired the best guys. It didn't matter how much it costs. You hired the best people to do the job. And the market, especially in California, I don't know how it is in Washington, but the market here with security companies is so saturated. Mm -hmm. um, you can't swing a dead cat in any city in, the, in Southern California without hitting a security company. <laughs> and and they're, all, they're all vying for the same jobs. Um, you know, they've got their little marketing department. They're all running around. You know, you've got Allied Universal and you've got United Security and you've got World Protection, and, you know. Joe's security guards, they're all going after the same contract. So what it comes down to is lowest bidder. Mm. And if you're the lowest bidder, that means you're not spending a lot of money on training. You're not spending a lot of money on uniforms. You're really not spending a lot of money doing background checks and, and making sure that the people you're hiring um, are worth a crap. I mean, I, I've worked with some guys 
when we had to bring in like uniform guys to supplement what we were doing, I mean, it was just, it was horrible. Right. We did a, we did a, a plant closure a couple of years ago and, uh, it, it was, it was pretty, um, pretty tense. They were closing a, a manufacturing facility and laying off about 300 people and, there was no notice, you know, they just came in Friday, they handed him a check and said, you know, thanks for your service. Have a nice day. Hmm. And, uh, we had to bring in some, some uniformed unarmed security to supplement, you know, like, uh, entry points and stuff like that. And I mean, I, I just, I don't know how to describe it. And some of these guys, you wonder how they got out of bed in the morning <laughs> and, and managed to not murder themselves, you know, <laughs> sticking a knife in a toaster or something, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, for, for those who have been in the security industry that have worked at various levels, um, you probably know what we're talking about. You've probably had some of that yourself. Um, oh, man, I've got some horror stories, but I, I won't go into them. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. I, I have some, too, but I just they're just they're not, they're not fit. They're not fit for general consumption. Well, they're you know? not. They're just. They're not. And sometimes you got to ask yourself, what are these people thinking? I mean, some of these are high level government agencies that everybody knows the acronym for. And you're going, what are they doing hiring these people? And yet they walk around slapping each other on the back and congratulating each other saying, oh, we're great. We're good. You know, and yada, yada, yada. And every day I met them every day, every day. I swear to God, no matter where I worked or who I worked for or what job it was. Everybody was selling their resume. They were every oh, goddamn yeah. day was the same freaking story. And it's like, Jesus, I get it, man. You're, you're, you're Kyle's best friend, okay? You know, you should have been the sniper right. over there. Holy crap. You know, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent, man. That just, that just came out of nowhere. <laughs> no, I, I agree, man. It's just, you know, I, and we even saw some of these guys overseas on contract. Yes. It's yeah, like, we did. You just look at them, you go, how the hell did you get here? Right. How did you manage to get through the the screening process and get on this contract? Yeah, yeah. And, and I ran into the same guy on two different contracts in two different countries. Wow. Oh, I think you did tell me about that. Um, yeah, it's like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah no Afghanistan. Names, but, you know. Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of which, and that's a perfect cure lead-in uh, to the first thing you really wanted to talk about. Um, that's been brought up a couple of times. I've talked to guys about it. It's a fascinating story. Um, I'll let you decide how much depth you want to go into it. Um, but uh, for the folks that are listening, um, if you feel like like he's calling you out, uh, you know, it's just it's just this guy's just telling it the way he remembers it actually happening. And I'll let him go into any detail he wants. But we're going to talk about. You want to talk about? I'll let you do the title. But it had to do with you with the particular experience in Helmand Province. Uh, in oh, um, yeah. in Afghanistan, because uh, I've heard I've heard th- I've heard that tale from two other guys, um, and they kind of said similar things, but they never went into great detail about it. Well, there's, you know, we we still live by a code, you know, and and the fact is that that we were there to to do a job, and we weren't actually there, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right? Okay. We we didn't do things that we did in places that we never were, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, and I think you're talking about the the Battle of Bastion. Yes, yes. You broke up a little bit, but um, yeah, it was um, it was a really really interesting night. Um, so for the Battle of Bastion, are, for the people that are listening that don't know what you're talking about, can you can you quickly set that table? 2012. Um, 
bastion bastion base is the is the combined base between uh the british had bastion uh the marines were on camp leatherneck and we had a uh, an afghan army outpost called shorbach um they were all basically in the same general area of course shorbach and and uh you know the american and british side were walled off from each other um very little mo- movement in between those camps but uh, Bastion and Hel- and and Leatherneck were were completely connected, so we were on both sides. Mm. Um, the airstrip was owned uh, by the British um, and utilized by the Marines. So the Marine Corps had assets there. They had uh, Harriers and, and uh, helicopters, and you know all the repair facilities and all that. The the big tents along the side of the side of the apron on the runway, um, you know, were filled with. Young marine aviation mechanics, you know, hydraulic mechanics, and, and so on. Mm. Um, and it happened to be the the time that Prince Harry was there, with the, I think the Royal Marines. Pretty sure he was a, a gunner in a helicopter at that time. Okay. Um, Fifteen individuals uh, breached the perimeter fence, made their way onto the base. They were dressed in American camouflage, Army camos. Mm. Um, Still pretty easy to spot because they were wearing bright white tennis shoes and they all had beards. Uh. <laughs> um, but these guys, they had it together. They were three five-man teams. Um, they had communications. They had AKs. They had um, RPGs. Hmm. Um, at least one guy in, in each group had an RPK. Wow. Um, and they had they had a mission. And their mission was, from what we understood, was to get Prince Harry. Hmm. Um, so they came onto the airfield, um, they used hand grenades and, and, uh, small arms over at the, uh, at the Harrier area. They destroyed eight, eight aircraft. They killed a uh, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Rabel. He was the, uh, the commanding officer of the Harrier squadron, hmm. um, with a hand grenade blast. And they killed, uh, Sergeant Bradley Atwell. Um, he was, a uh, a Marine Sergeant, um, still kind of unclear what he was actually doing. Um, there's a number of different stories. One, he was driving a bus One he was, you know, at one of the hangars where, but he ended up uh, being one of the two fatalities of that night. Um, hmm. there were a number of contractors that were injured, um, in the, in the ensuing firefights, they destroyed the, uh, the fuel depot. Um, they shot RPGs through a couple of the hangar walls. Um, fortunately, um, about half of them, from what I understand, didn't detonate hmm. for one reason or another. Um, but they came in, they raised a lot of hell <clears throat> and they, they destroyed millions of dollars worth of American assets. Um, British and American troops launched helicopters to go after them. And, uh, 14 of the 15 were killed outright. Wow. And, uh, I'm not sure what happened to the 15th guy, huh. but, um, what was interesting was a couple days later, um, when their bodies were claimed, they were claimed by locals from the local village. So they were right outside the gate. Huh. And they had been planning it for a while. And it turned out that, uh, you know, once again, this is just, you know, things that we were told. And I, I can't, you know, guarantee the accuracy of any of the information. But we were told that the British had two interpreters that the day of the attack did not show up for work. And so they feel like they were probably 
the inside guys feeding them intel Interesting. and you know they knew right where to go there was the tongans um were assisting the british in security on that side of the airfield um not all of the towers were manned and it seemed that they knew which towers were unmanned and where to come in um you know and they made they made their way through and they got all the way to the all the way to the airfield wow so so this is this is the case in point where you and i had talked uh earlier i think we, we maybe brought it up a little bit um in the previous episode as well which was um you know the the insider stuff um frequently whether it's blue on blue uh, blue on green or you know whatever it happens to be there's frequently in what we call those kinds of uh, one of the terms some time ago was low intensity conflicts regional skirmishes you know uh, uh, you know uh, unconventional kind of stuff you've uh-huh. got insiders frequently whether it's the, the guys working in the kitchen uh, the guy or if it's an interpreter um, or you know one of the uh, locals uh, that are in a tower, they see who's coming and going, when and where, and they yeah. they take notes of this stuff and they plan this stuff out and they practice it. Oh yeah, almost under our noses. Stages. Yeah, it's been in the planning stages for quite a while. Wow, that's um, amazing. You know, because they were incredibly coordinated in their movement. Um, you know, they like I said, they had communications, so you know they knew where each other were at all times. And, you know, it was just weird. But to your point, it's like, yeah, we had a lot of people that were interpreters. Um, we had we had other factions that were there on the base. We had Jordanian soldiers. Um, there was, you know, the, the Afghan army. Those guys were there. You know, there's a lot of workers on the base. Um, hmm. We had people from Bulgaria and Romania and, and uh, um, you know, some other... Uh, uh, third country nationals now when those things happen uh, in, in that incident in particular so i'm going to ask you uh um did certain people come or fall under suspicion i mean you know did they say hey you know we need to check out this group or this class of guys or, or you know i mean or did they just say hey that's the end of it it was just that that was just one of those uh freak things that happens you know it's uh it's hard to say because a lot of that stuff happened at the at the highest levels. Um, the aftermath um, w- was pretty horrible, hmm. you know. In in what happened to uh, to some of the the leaders over there, um, the leaders of the, the leaders of the guys that that led well, the like assault, the, um, the the generals that were there. Um, General Gurdanis, for one, and uh, General Sturdivant. Um, Greg Sturdivant was a, a two-star Marine general in charge of Marine Aircraft, aircraft Wing 3. Hmm. Um, he had to fall on his sword for it. Um, you know, they were both denied promotion, and they were invited to retire from the Marine Corps. Wow. And, and it truly wasn't their fault. I mean, that side of the base fell under the auspices of the British. Hmm. And... As contractors, you know, we had gone in there and, and, and we'd done an evaluation and, you know, we told them what we needed, what we'd like to have, and, you know, um, and we were denied pretty much everything. You know, we asked them for night vision. We asked them for, you know, heavy weapons on those on the points that that faced out, you know, into no man's land. And we were just flat denied. Hmm. 
you know so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of posturing and a lot of politicking going on okay so but, you know when 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 everything goes sideways though somebody's got to pay for it <laughs> well yeah yeah somebody's going to take the fall right yeah um, absolutely whether that yeah uh and you and i and i'm sure plenty of other guys have seen and seen their 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 share of you know once in a while it's kind of like yeah that you know he really did he really was responsible but for the most part it's like oftentimes it's like what like you just said he had you're saying he's responsible it's kind of like the captain of the ship you know he may not have had anything to do with it directly or indirectly but he's the captain of the ship and ultimately you know ultimately it's it's their responsibility so right yeah you know a lot of guys a lot of guys paid for it um Mm. it was a very long uh two days we didn't get a whole lot of sleep. Um, you know, the so, base went well, up. How on, long did it? So island. it lasted two days, or? Well, the 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 firefight itself lasted um, through the night till about four o'clock in the morning. Wow! Uh, started at ten. Huh. Um, and well, you know how it is. I mean, everybody goes on high alert. You know, everybody's all sphincters are tightened up and you know so you're 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 checking everything you're checking every gate every fence yeah um you know we stopped and 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 searched all of the trucks all of the um the honey wagons you know that service the uh the porta potties you know we stopped all those guys and pulled them out of their trucks you know and made sure they didn't have any weapons or anything like that and it it was it was ugly for quite a while and then Mm. you know the next day we manned every single tower on the base and the only way to do that was to pull both ships you know on duty and put everybody to work hmm. so you know wow you know that's uh it's interesting point you bring it's um and but i'm not sure what the answer is but it just seems to me that that so often that was it I mean, I worked on contracts where we pretty much got whatever we asked for, um, and, and so it was an issue. And then other contracts, is like, you know, uh, yeah, you can have your food and your bed, but that's about it. Um, but it, it makes me wonder, maybe you have an answer for it. it, it's like, why? I mean, it's, you know, why, are you, why do you go to these overreactive process? after the fact i mean i i understand you got to lock the place down and make sure it doesn't you know that there's not a second or a third or a follow-on to that um and and, you know maybe one or more of them are still on there you want to catch them i get so you got to do what you got to do but it's kind of like you know if you'd taken this a little bit more seriously in the beginning it would it probably wouldn't have got to this level right and you know that's that's kind of like it's kind of like what we do, you know, in our everyday lives too. It's like, do you want to be reactive or proactive? Right. Wow. You know, and, and, and we, we made suggestions, you know, things that needed to be done and, uh, and they fell on deaf ears and, right. and afterwards, after the fact, there's always posturing, you know, sure. We got to, we got to show this, this heavy presence, you know, that we're not going to be messed with. And, you know, after they blew up the fuel dump and, you know, killed two guys and wounded a bunch of other guys. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, you've got your, uh, you know, your management types that have to, seems like they have to sort of, you know, um, justify their existence, you know? (laughs) So this is, this is what we did, you know? (laughs) Uh, Right. Right. And and we both worked with those folks, you know? Yep. So, Uh, you know, that's, and and it's always, it it seems like it kind of always goes that way. Right. Right. Um, 
You know, I seem to, I, you know, I remember that incident um, in because I remember seeing and hearing it on the news, both the radio and television. Uh, and I and and I I, I don't rec- recollect a lot of it in detail, but I mean like you know his arrival there and the media, maybe mostly the the British news media making a big deal about it. And, yeah, it and, and and the British military trying to say, okay, calm down, we don't want to advertise it. Too late, it's already been done. Um, they know he's there. Um, and then after the incident, as I recollect, um, Harry didn't want to leave, but uh, the royal family and the British government said, yeah, no, we'd really think you should come home now. Oh, they yanked his redheaded ass right out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, the funny part is it's like you think about it. Um, you know, we saw the guy. We, we saw him while he was there. Um, and, and while we're all there, he's, he's just another trooper. You know, huh. It's like, all right, you know, so you're – Parents were second cousins, you know, who cares? Um, huh. But, you know, the thing is, it's like he wanted to be just a normal guy. Right. So people pretty much let him be a normal guy. But when it came right down to it, he was in a secured location, you know, well off in the, the main part of the base. Nobody was going to get to him. You huh. know? There's just no way. Right. So, but that was their motivation, you know. And, huh. uh, and you know, good on them. They they tried. Wow. And they uh, they made a mess. They they made a big mess. So I mean, they, I got to ask you: did they did they get close, or was it no. like never had yeah, a chance? All, no, they died on the runway. Yeah. They never okay. They never made it across the airfield. Yeah, I've seen that before. Um, it's kind of like wow. It was that was pretty brave, but <laughs> yeah, it's pretty brave. Though, yeah, Twelve it, feet. It, well, you know, and it's amazing how how quick these uh, these these air forces um, uh, re- respond. I mean, sometimes at some of these places, like wow, they got a lot oh, man, of stuff they, up in the air quick. They had helicopters in the air fast, and oh. there was a, there was a group of, of these guys that were hiding in the uh, in the O2 plant. Um, we had a liquid oxygen plant on site. I mm. guess they manufactured locks for the uh, for the Harriers. They used it in their systems. And, um, you know, these guys were hiding in there. And the gunships came around and found them in there. And the gunships destroyed the O2 facility to get these guys. Hmm. And it's like, I guess they never read the story about, you know, General Washington crossing the Potomac, you know, on Christmas Eve to kill British people. It's like, <laughs> you know, we'll kill you on Christmas Eve in a snowstorm and then we'll write stories about it. <laughs> <laughs> so was that, well, was that in the wintertime when it happened? I don't remember. No, it was, uh, it was September, September 14th. Okay, close enough. Uh, you, you're coming out of fall. Okay. Wow. Well, so you know, it was also, a cold, it was probably, uh-huh. it, it was transitioning between hot and cold at that time then too, wasn't it? It was hot during the day, and we were lighting, you know, little bonfires in the trash cans at night. Right. You know, okay. Burning pretty- okay. Right. Wow. Um, so, yeah, but you know what? Timing, you know. Um, shift change was at 11 p.m. Our bus normally picked us up from our ECP at about 10.30, 10.40. Okay. These guys hit us at 10 minutes after 10. Now, the last hour of shift, what are you doing? Mm. Cleaning up. You know, you're putting stuff away. You've probably taken off your helmet and set your rifle down. Maybe took your body armor off to get a little fresh air on your on your, on your your clothes. Or you're just sitting around shooting the breeze, you know, waiting for the bus to show up and your reliefs to get there. Oh, right? I get what you're exactly saying. that's exactly what we were doing. 
you know, and, so and they knew they knew when to attack. They knew exactly when to attack us. Wow. Okay. And they hit us. They hit us right after 10 p.m. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. Wow, man. I mean, that's. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. No. I mean, but that, you know, that that's, was, that's a that that is a smart common tactic that 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 they that not all of them use, but they they figured out that that's. Kind of like in when you're coming and going from the base, arrivals and departures, best time to yeah, attack, well, right? Yeah, and that's you know, that's indicative of them having you know inside information and and knowing yes. the comings and goings of the base, knowing what time we change wow. shifts, knowing wow, you know which towers were manned and which ones weren't, where they could get through. Wow, and they they exploited all of their information and they. So do you recollect, when, after that incident, when that happened, do you recollect them saying, you know what, maybe we should reevaluate some of this stuff? Nope. Wow. Nope. It went to, you know, uh, you know, level 10 sphincter tightening for about four days. <laughs> and then <laughs> next thing you know, everything's pretty much back to abnormal. You know, yeah. We still didn't have heavy weapons on the points. We still wow. didn't have night vision. Um you know, we had we had a bunch of guards that were um, exhausted. You know, we we're at the point of exhaustion because we'd been working, you know, twelve-hour shifts, seven days a week for months. Right. Um, fortunately for me, I had just gotten back from vacation. Huh. I, I'd been home for a couple of weeks. So you were still kind and, of frosty. Yeah, a little bit. You yeah. know, I was. Yeah. Um, you know, but the thing was, it was. You know, I got back on September 11th, so we expected something on 9/11. You know, because the anniversary oh, of 9/11. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's when, uh, you know, a bunch of other crap happened. Um, yeah, it seems like every went, year, 9/11. Um, I mean, sometimes it's like, eh, okay, nothing really happened, and then other times it's like, whoa. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, you um, know, oddly enough, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm looking at the. Uh, Hang on, I'm looking something up right. Okay, so the attack in Benghazi happened on September 11th, 2012. Yeah. And it went overnight, 11 to 12. Huh. Um, the attack at Camp Bastion was uh, September 14th. Huh. Two days after Benghazi. I was going to say, yeah, that was the same year, right? Yeah, it's two days later. Right, right. So, and, you know, this is this is when we were fed all that nonsense about, you know, Benghazi being. Uh, you know, oh, it's just over some, some video, some video or some nonsense. <laughs> like, yeah. OK. They still say that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this the same kind of stuff that came out of Benghazi came out of Bastion. You know, wow. uh, the aftermath of Benghazi, they said, you know, that um, the diplomatic corps there had asked for increased security. They were denied. They'd asked for more personnel. They were denied. They'd asked for better weapons. They were denied, you know, and, and basically the same thing at Bastion. You know, we told them that we needed more people, you know, to cover all those positions. We needed better weapons. Dude, they, they issued us M 16, a twos. Mm. It was like carrying a goose gun around, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we got, um, we got, uh, I think we got Berettas. Oh man! But but they had no gear for us. Wow! You remember the old the old army green uh, flap holsters? Yes, I do. That's what we. Well, the Marines we had issued. them too for a while. I'm just saying it's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's what they gave us. Wow. 
Oh my! You know, goodness. so we're, we're making the best of it. We're putting, attaching these things to drop leg platforms. You know, at least trying to make them a little bit functional. Wow. Um, hey, l- well, let me ask you. You know, because on most, I don't think every contract. Well, maybe every contract. There was one con- only one contract I can think of where they wouldn't let you go out and get your own stuff. But every other contract I was on, if if you wanted to spend your own money, dude, knock yourself out. Did they oh, let you guys do did. that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we okay. we bought right. we bought plate carriers and. You know everything else we use their uh, we use their plates. But the stuff they issued you, World War oh II Korea era stuff, right? No, it wasn't that bad. We got the, uh, the IBAs. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. We got the IBAs from uh, from Cherry Point before we departed. So you know we had brand new interceptor body armor. Hmm. But man, you put that stuff on when it's 120 degrees. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. You know you might as well be wearing a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it so, feels you know, like we, after a time. We got plate carriers, and you know we ordered holsters and belts and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, I think I told you this before, but when we first got there, they issued us the uh, the all cotton CN looking jumpers and pants. Hmm. You know, stuff that you go out in the heat and you die. Wow! So we finally got them to the you know let us switch over to at our own expense, of course. Five um, elevens and and quarter zip um, combat shirts, you know, stuff like that. Right. Wow. But it took some doing. You know, it took a couple months to get that done. You know, I like I said, I have experienced that, but only on one other contract. And I and at one point we finally just I maybe I did. I just put my foot down and said, "Look, you know, why can't I roll this sleeve up to my elbows?" You know. Yeah, exactly. Why? why? You know, <laughs> why? because because I was I'm not doing in the it Marine Corps. Yeah, I was doing it when they were look when they weren't looking, and I was returning, and they were looking, and it's like, hey, what are you doing? It's like, what do you mean? What am I doing? You know. And anyway, I just I don't want to go off on that tangent, but oh yeah, they had us they had us blousing our pants, and you know, do it's like, oh. what? Well, you said yeah. that that in part uh, was driven because uh, the Marines were so rigid, and, and yeah. I'm gonna say and this is funny. I mean, I still think it's funny. You call the Marine Corps a cult? I did not. I never said that. <laughs> You did, and it's kind of funny because it kind of is, you know, if you look at the movies that have been produced uh, mostly about Marines, and if you really look at it and you think about it and you look at the stereotype of a Marine, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I know Marines that are in their late 60s that still cut their hair high and tight, you know, and, yeah. and use military time, and they're they're still Marines, you know. But, but the joke was... <laughs> the joke was there's only two branches of service. There's the Army and the Navy. You know, those are the only two branches, true branches of service. The Marine Corps is a cult and the, the Air Force is a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, actually, I think my dad may have said something just like that, um, but it was so long ago. Um yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you know, but I think Air but, Force but, pilots on a bombing run, you know, one of them looks at his watch and says, "Hey, sixteen hundred, the officers' club is open. Well, let's go." <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we'll we supposed to tomorrow. drop the bombs first, though? Uh, yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. Right? Oh man, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> so, but I mean, but part of the uh, part of that that dress code and maybe some of the <laughs> other reasons w- was because of that military that military bearing they like the marine corps bearing is what they like to call it the military bearing whatever i mean you yeah, hear that all I, the time keep your bearing keep i your think bearing. that was i think that was part of it the other part was um this was the very first time that the marines had ever engaged in a in a contract with civilian security mm. so the air force the army 
had been doing it for years. You know, they've had contractors overseas for a long time, but so they had time to adjust, and the Marine Corps hadn't. Yeah, they had time to adjust. Gotcha. Well, speaking Um, of which, but the Marine Corps, this was brand new for them, so they just really didn't know how to act. Right. You know. Interesting. Do you know? Have they changed that? Because I, from what I understand, they still contract out. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, Camp Bastion doesn't even exist anymore. If you try to look at it on Google Maps, it's just gone. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the they might have just it. soft penciled, erased it out. I know yeah, they, they should have. I know they've done that with the other stuff that I've looked at. It's um, like, okay. But there, there really isn't right now. There isn't much of a Marine presence in uh, in the Middle East right now. There isn't much of an American well, presence. Well, that's honestly. true. Yeah. Well, yeah. A lot of it's been handed over, given, yeah. uh, just left there um, as parting gifts because – well, I mean, it's expensive to it's it's expensive to get the stuff in. It's expensive to get the stuff back out. Uh, it's more expensive to to take it out than it than it is to to leave it there. Wow, wow, yeah. So, so you and, know, and we left a lot of stuff behind. Huh. Wow. Uh, so how, you know, you, you have an experience like that. Um, that obviously kind of makes you look at things a little bit differently um, when you get home. Um, you know, and you're off contract and you're still doing security. I mean, you, you you don't quite look at security the same anymore, do you? I don't think you can. Right. I really don't. I mean, you know, we had, we had a lot of, um, a lot of other folks on that base. And, and one of the biggest contingents there was, uh, from the Jordanian army Hmm. and they had, they paired Jordanians with, uh, with the, the young Marines that were on, uh, on MP duty. And, you know, there was, there was one night that, uh, you know, we're all just standing around the ECP, just kind of shooting the breeze and two Marines and their two, uh, Jordanian counterparts rolled up and, you know, everybody got other trucks and you know, standing around, you know, they're smoking cigarettes or whatever. And, uh, this one Jordanian kept doing his best to try to position himself between me and our communications gear. Hmm. And, you know, I warned him off like three times <laughs> and I finally butt stroked him a little bit in the hip and I told him if he didn't get away, I was going to shoot him, huh. you know, uh, but it, it's one of those places where you, you go over and you just honest to God, don't know who you can trust. Right. You know? Um, I, I found some of the Jordanian soldiers to be, uh, incredibly, um, uh, friendly. Um, they seem to be squared away and, and some of them were, you know, they were shitbirds just like we have. You right. know, <laughs> they're right. absolutely useless. Yeah, you know that trust thing is is, is um, been brought up a number of times. But you know that's that's something that that's actually something we think about, and at some point it's probably not cognizant anymore. It's kind of like just second nature when we're over there. But I mean, because you know you're talking to somebody on the other side of the fence, not literally. Um, and, and they're smiling and, you know, they're being affable and, and you're thinking everything's going along swimmingly only to find out, uh, later that day or that week or that month, it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, hey, yeah. That, that goes back to the beginning of time. You know, you have, right. uh, Korean Vietnam, you know, they had Koreans and, and Vietnamese people who come in, work on the bases. And then at night they're outside shooting at you, right. you know, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Wow. You know, and it could yep. be it could be the same with these guys. I mean, we had hundreds of workers that came on the base in Iraq every day. Hundreds. We don't know what they were doing once they left the base. 
you right, know? right. We don't know if they were walking around, you know, drawing a map in their pocket or, or whatever, you know, spotting equipment or, you know, right. you just, you just don't know. Right. And, and when you have the amount of, of green on blue and green on green attacks over there, you know, um, right. especially the green on blue, you know, when you had a, when you had civilian contract police officers over there trying to train police officers and, you know, and one of them, you know, drops the soap and, you know, next thing you know, he's shooting people in the back of the head and, you know, just going crazy and whacking a bunch of people before he gets sawed in half. Um, you know, who do you trust? Right. You know, these people are supposed to have been vetted, you know, to get into this program. And then you have one go sideways and kill a bunch of people. Right. You know, and, and it seems to me there, there was actually a lot more of that than has been reported. Some of it kind of there, makes, some of it makes yeah. the news, but a lot more of it doesn't just like contractors who've been killed. A lot. Yeah. I mean, we're talking thousands who've died. Yeah, and um, and nobody knows about that because contractors are not counted in in the in the total um, death count. Right. In Iraq and Afghanistan. Huh. But somebody some, somebody's keeping those numbers. They're just not I mean, releasing it. There was an attack just the other day, and you know they reported that a, a civilian contractor was killed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it turns out it was uh, some friends of mine knew the guy. He was a medic. Huh. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, a lot well, of that went Speaking of which, as a medic, and, when you're over there, did you feel you know, particularly like about, you had a target on you? The mystique of being a contractor and, and the, um, you know, the, the general opinion of contractors and the different ways that we're viewed, you know. Um, yeah, no. A lot of times let's, the service people don't like us because we're you know we're over there doing the same job for a lot more money right you know um the the general population thinks we're just a bunch of dirty mercenaries you know over there just you know kicking doors down and killing people right which as you as you well know isn't the case no um, um other people call us warmongers you know it's like who else would volunteer to go to war it's like <laughs> you, know, you know people who are qualified and want to do the job um well, in a sense of patriotism. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Um, the money didn't hurt. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I think you and I talked about that last time, and we've talked about it a couple times since, is, um, you know, but the money was important, but sometimes it wasn't always about the money. Um, I no. mean, it's, uh, at, you know, whether, it, whether that's in the beginning, the end, or in the middle, or the whole time, and everybody's a little bit different. Uh, but before we cover down on that and a couple of other things, let me ask you real quick. As a medic, uh, did you feel like you had a target on your back as you were a medic? You know, the, the, old, the old thing is that in war, uh, you know, war of attrition, if you, you know, take out, yeah. the, take out the medics, take out the doctors. Um, did you ever f have that? No, no, because I didn't have a big red cross painted on my helmet. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and back then, you know, back in the day, those guys were targets. You know, you take right. out you take out the squad's medic and, you know, you, you cripple the squad. Right. And, right. But, you know, we do the same thing. We The the 5.56 five, round was developed to maim more than it was to kill. So, you know, you maim one guy. And if you have, you know, actual warriors, they're not going to leave anybody behind. So you right. take one guy out of the fight, you take four other guys out carrying them away. Right. You know, so so yeah. we're guilty of it too. But right. now over there it was uh um it, you know, it's just a whole different world. And right. and you really couldn't even if you were, you know, watching the base through binoculars, you really couldn't distinguish, you know, one guy from another. Hmm. 
Yeah. As you, far as, you know, job description. Right. And, and you'd have to, yeah, you'd have to be quite a ways out to not, for someone not to spot you um, as, as observing what's going on and go, hey, and questioning it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And so, here's, here's the funny part. There were three of us there that were medics, but none of us were actually listed as medics. We couldn't officially function as medics. Really? Um, yeah. Um, we were supposed to be covered by some, some insurance policy that, they gave us access to, you know, some doctor, you know, clinic over there. And I actually went to the clinic once and I had to read the x-ray for the guy because he had no idea what he was looking at. Hmm. Um, you know, I think he might have been a vet. <laughs> He's more adept at working on horses than people. But, huh. um, you know, and then we were supposed to be treated, you know, for, uh, you know, for life-threatening injuries. We, we would be treated at the cash or at the, uh, at the Roll 3 hospital. But... You know, there's, you're talking about, you know, 125, 130 guys on shift all at the same time. Stuff happens, you know. Right. Um, people don't drink enough water, they get dehydrated. Um, they're playing around with knives and they halfway cut their fingers off. And, and you know, there's little boo-boos and injuries and, and stuff all day long that just have to be treated. Right. So, you know, the three of us got together and, you know, we sent home and got a bunch of equipment. And um, I had some contacts, you know, still in Iraq that... Uh, they were able to send me some some stuff that we couldn't get otherwise, huh. and uh, made friends with the with the docs and the nurses uh, in the caches and and some of the corpsmen that were there. And, you know, they supplied us with some gear. Hmm. Yeah. Well, but officially, we weren't medics. Right. Well, you know that's interesting because uh, it's <clears throat> talked about that with other guys. You know, about sometimes when you're over there particularly as a contractor, um, you got to do what you got to do sometimes and, and go outside the normal supply chain to get what you need. Uh, um, yeah. You don't hear me? Hang on, man. I'm, yeah, I'm losing you here for some reason. Hold on a second. Okay. I'm going to shut this. Yeah, no, you're fine at my end. Um, there's been a couple or a few fade-ins and outs, but nothing nothing major. Can you hear me well, fine I now? Was on, uh, I was on Wi-Fi calling, and I think my, my Wi-Fi is having some issues. We're having some storms down here. Oh, Okay. It's kind of, I know, California, right? Liquid sunshine. <laughs> we call that the same thing up here in Washington, man. Liquid sunshine. Yeah. We get, where yeah, I live, get we a, get plenty you get of it. it. 300 days, you get it 300 days a year. We get it like 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, but you guys probably get some good lightning storms too, right? We did last night, yeah. Lightning and thunder. It was pretty festive, about 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so let's go back, so let's go back, uh, you know, transition now into you know uh, so we were talking about the stereotypes and 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 the difficulties and the challenges so you know when you come home either on rotation or you're taking a break between contracts or you're thinking about getting out or when you do get out because you you've mentioned guys have asked about this i've had a lot of guys talk about and ask about it um and sometimes through other people it's like you know um and some of us have, have have some of us um, have been su successful or found success or been able to at least keep our heads above water when we're done because um, you know there there's a there is no shortage of resources out there um, it's just an awful lot of guys for whatever reason just don't know where to look who to talk to and how to find it and how to put it to to good work for them so you made a successful transition so if you if you can if you want to can you spend a, a minute or two talking about how you made that transition back um, into civilian well, I, life and work? I think I had an advantage because, you know, um, I've always been the old guy on contract. 
Okay. Hmm. Um, I went through whips at age 54. Ooh. Yeah. I thought I was old when I went through it, man. (laughs) And, you know, so I was, I was 20 years older than just about everyone else. So I'd already had a life, you know, I I did my military service back in the, in the seventies and early eighties. Um, you know, I had, uh, you know, a number of different civilian, uh, careers and jobs. and, And so I think I had, I had an advantage coming back from, from doing that over guys that, you know, get out of the military, go straight into contracting because mm. it's really other than the money. It's, it's not that much different. You're still, you know, way far away from home, um, living in austere conditions and dealing with people that, you know, want to do you harm. Right. So I think the I think the biggest problem facing some of these guys is they've, they, they haven't known any other life. Hmm. And, you know, they may have seen a lot of combat when they were in the military, you know, at first, you know, through the Gulf Wars and, and all that stuff. And that affected them negatively. You know, I may have had a little PTSD or, you know, a, a TBI that w- went undiagnosed or, you know, a lot of factors. Right. Um, and, and everybody deals with stress and, and, um, and hardship differently. Okay. So now they went from the military which was, you know, tell you when to get up and when to eat and when to brush your teeth and when to go to bed. Um, you know, now you're doing the same job for a lot more money with nobody telling you what to do. So you, you kind of feel like a rock star, you know? Mm. Um, but then when it's over, what do you do? You know? Right. Then you get home and you realize you got all these demons and you don't know how to deal with them. And, and, you know, type A personalities, we don't normally ask for help, you know? Like I, I can deal with it myself, and a lot of times people can't, you know. Right. So it's the, not necessarily the inability, but the unwillingness to ask for help, hmm. right? Or to recognize that they need help, you know. <clears throat> um, and like you said, there's there's plenty of resources out there that, uh, for the most part, you know, go unused. Hmm. Um, I think I have it made down here with the VA. Because the, the VA hospital here in Long, in Long Beach used to be um, Long Beach Naval Medical Center. It was Long Beach Naval Hospital. So it's been around for a really long time. Um, and they made a successful transition from a naval hospital to a VA facility. Hmm. Um, I have a direct line to my doctor's office. I can pick up the phone any time of the day and call. Most of the times, um, the nurse will answer. Wow. If I need an appointment, I can get one within a week. You know, and I hear these horror stories, these guys waiting three months, you know, to get an appointment. Right. Um, I have a, a standing annual physical every March. Hmm. Um, you know, the week before I call and leave a message, they call in all my labs. I go in and do the labs, you know, the Monday before my appointment. And and it all just gets done. Hmm. So I, I think I think in that respect, I, I got lucky just based on where I live. So um, do you think that's because of your geographic region or do you think it it has, it goes back to the changes that Trump made? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm. Um, when I first started going to the VA, it wasn't as streamlined as it is now. Mm. Um, I think, uh, I think the Trump administration made some great strides in VA healthcare and, and I'm hoping that this new administration is going to continue that. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that because <laughs> this isn't a political show. But uh, I, I just hope that I just hope that the changes put in place and and the progress that they've made continues. Right. Uh, and well, you know, you there know, was uh, that. You know, it. Uh, 
we 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 all probably have some uh, anecdotal stories of you know groups of people we've talked to whether because we were invited to do it or just you know happened to you know come up in conversation and it's like you know well why won't you hire you know new people right out of school you know why the why the big focus on vets what's the big deal you know and why do we owe them you know what about me and it's like well yeah what about you you know what have you done you know have you know have you been outside <laughs> and i said and, and and said be offended and, and upset if you want but have you been outside the bubble of the u.s before other than on a um a postcard type um passenger trip somewhere i said if you've gone off the beaten path on your own out there um I said, you know, you know, in, in the kinds of environments we're talking about, um, under the conditions we're talking about, um, then you'll understand. I said, but other than that, I can't really understand, get you to understand it. Um, but yeah, the, the men and women that have done their duty, I mean, that's, um, you know, and, and some of them still do. Uh, and some yeah. guys are still doing it because they don't know anything else. They, they, you know, they try, they try, they try when they get home, and there's just nothing there, and nothing fits or works for them. So they are still struggling, still grappling, still trying to figure it out. Uh, yeah, and then you still then you have people, you know, that uh, that will come out and say that you know former police officers and former military members are the ones keeping a white supremacist party alive. It's like, where do you come up with this crap? You know, um, I know a lot of veterans that that came home. And, um, you know, they floundered for a little bit and, and they ended up in a fire academy or a police academy. Hmm. And and there's a good reason for that. And, and you and I both know what it is. It's like we were talking about, you know, why do why do we do what we do? Why did why did we volunteer to go to a place that's just so crappy? You know, why would we do that? Oh, my gosh, it's hailing outside. Uh Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, we don't we don't get base, big baseball hail here. It's like the size of a pea. I don't have to worry about the roof of my truck. Um, but you know, that's the question that I get asked a lot. It's like, what would make you do that? Right. And it's like, we miss the camaraderie, hmm. you know? Um, maybe that's what it is. It, there's, there's a, a lot of it, you know, that has to do with working in a team, um, working with a, a group of, of individuals that you're entrusting your life to and that they're entrusting their life to you. Um, there's nothing like being in the military, you know? Um, you know, they try to say, well, you know, athletes, no, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's a different world and it's a world that we've, we've adapted to and, and something that we're comfortable with. So when we go back on contract, you know, we're doing basically the same thing with basically the same group of people, maybe a little more diverse, you know, because we had, we had army, Marines, air force, Navy, you know, coast guard, we had all, we had everybody, we covered everything and, and we had everything from, you know, 18d paratrooper medics to you know uh swift water guys you know and swift boat guys right um so it's a very diverse group of individuals but all pretty much on the same path so when they get out and they stop doing that um you know and then end up in a police academy or a fire academy it's kind of the same thing Hmm. you know the the police is is very much a a fraternal um type order you know right Everybody's got everybody's back, you know, for and may, the most part. And maybe, maybe that's what, you know, it's that fraternity. It's that, it's that you know, we're, we're all the same. Um, even if we're not, we're all the same because we're all, we are all truly on the same team. We are all yeah. truly fighting for the same cause. Uh, yeah. So despite our personal differences, 
you know, which, you know, and, and, and you know, it happens in police or fire or, you know, law, law enforcement or, or intelligence or military or private contracting. There's always that individual or group of individuals that just can't keep their individual stuff to themselves when at work. Right. They can't separate right. the two. Um, but yeah, no, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, and it, and it does. And then if you look at it from, from a higher level, um, you know, the guys that I worked with in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, the guys that I served with in the Navy, um, I, I didn't see any color. Hmm. I saw, I saw Americans doing, you know, the same job. I saw submarine sailors, you know, that all had, you know, the same goal, you know, the same mission in mind, submerge and surface. You know, it's always pretty important that your surfaces <laughs> match your dives. But, um, yeah, you, you do want to come back up, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, it just it didn't it didn't matter what color you were, or what state you were from, or you know, if you had an accent, or you know, where your parents were born. It just it just didn't matter. You know, you know? That, and that, it's and it still doesn't. That's a very important uh, um, uh, point, I think, is that because you know, I mean, I, I met. You know, both in the military and as a contractor, you know, we met people from different nations with different skin colors. And 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 that's interesting that you brought that up because, it, it, again, it's not that I didn't notice. Of course I noticed. Of course there, there's differences in, in those terms and, and other things. And especially if you are if you are uh, native to that country, you came over <clears throat> and that's where you go home to. Um, but as long as you don't let it get in the way and make a big deal about it, I'm not going to. I'm right. not, I'm not going to get – I think the one that got me the most was I had no idea how little those Nepalese guys were. <laughs> those little Gurkha dudes from Nepal, they're tiny. Yeah, yeah. But they're like little Tasmanian devils, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you know, the, the the vision that comes to mind is you go up to shake their hand and they quickly, you know, turn with your hand in theirs and they flip you over their back and it's like, whoa, yeah, what exactly. happened? Hey, well, <laughs> in the cartoon. colored sky. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. Um, but, but I, you know, it's, it, so the fraternity, the, the camaraderie, the, you know, the, the, just that we're all at the end of the day, you know, we can set aside our differences because we have all kinds of differences, whether it's religious sure or political or, you know, just name whatever it is. It's like, we know that. And for the most part, we can't always, but for the most part, we have pretty calm discussions and, and disagreements and arguments about it. But, you know, but at the end of the day, again, it's like, hey, we're on the same team, dude. You know? Yeah. But, you know, it's like, you know, on contract, there's 99% of the guys were, were wired tight and, and, you know, ready to rock. Yep. And there's always that 1%. And that's that's been pretty yes. much my my mantra for my whole life it's like i don't care where you're from right I, I don't i don't care if you're from the south the north i don't care if you're a a redneck or you know a cowboy or you know whatever i don't care if you're black white green yellow well are you it, it, what matters is if you're an asshole or not right well <laughs> and, and we've worked with with uh, iraqi nationals we've worked with afghan nationals and and, and plenty of other nationalities as well <laughs> and you know and and our radars were probably turned on pretty high you know when we're talking with them and working around them even after you get to know them because you never know um i mean and, you know and that's not really paranoia and that certainly isn't racist it's just being uh, it's um, business it, well it's it is and it's yeah paying attention to what's going on because you don't know for sure you know, this guy we wants had, to invite you over for tea, and you sit down on yeah. the little mat that they roll out on the ground. You know, you don't know that he's not setting you up for slaughter. Um, yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's like we worked on uh, on General Sturdivant's compound, the the Moth Three headquarters, and we ran his ECP and his internal security. Okay, and every day, the same two Pakistani nationals drove up in their little honey wagon, and every day, you know, and they were the nicest guys. One guy was an engineer, um, you know, super smart guy, spoke great English. Um, the other guy spoke decent English, um, looked like he was mixed with some northern european had the bluest eyes i've ever seen in my life hmm. um two super nice guys um but every single day we ran the mirror under their truck and made sure there was no explosives and we we patted them down and we we used the wand on them and we inspected the entire truck before we let them on the compound every single day hmm. that's you, just how it goes right you know and i'm glad you brought that up remember earlier we were talking about the resistance to wanting to comply with security protocols you know, and people have all kinds of reasons and crazy notions. And I heard some stuff sometimes is, you know, I just wanted to turn around and butt stroke them, but I didn't, um, you know, and just say, hey, you're not you're not coming on the base. Thank you. Adios. Um, but I guess where I'm going is that, uh, you know, the uh, oh, man, total brain fart now. I forgot where I was going with that. But well, I did. It, it was part and parcel with what you were saying. But, you know, it had to do with 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 the. Um, it, it seems that when the people are, you know, coming and going and, and we're doing our job, it's, it's, uh, geez, I totally forgot, man. I am told, I, I think I need another cup of coffee. So go ahead and finish what you, <laughs> uh, man, I, I don't know what happened. I had a cognitive well, I think, moment. I, yeah, think I had I, a Biden I moment. I, I think, I, <laughs> are you in the basement? Oh shit. <laughs> well, I think what you were driving at was, was the, uh, the difference between, you know, us being overseas wearing, you know, body armor and carrying multiple weapons and a bunch of ammo and, and you know, there to do a job. And, and those people, even those people wouldn't always comply. You know, they wanted to raise hell. In a civilian setting, you know, where <clears throat> they know you're really not going to do anything to them. You know, it's not, you're not going to body slam them. You're not going to take them down and handcuff them right. and drag them away. Right. You know, so they're going to, they're going to push it a little bit and see right. just how much they can get away with. Right. Um, I was fortunate where I worked that if I wrote someone up, something happened to them. Right. If I wrote them up for a security violation, it was after I'd warned them at least twice. Hmm. And and management knew that. They understood, you know, where I was coming from. And I don't want to tell the same people, you know, three, four, five times, you know, don't tailgate. Use your own badge. Swipe in. You know, make sure we, we can follow. Because what happens if, you know, God forbid something happens to the building? So we run the report. We know who's all swiped into the building, so we know who we're looking for. But you have five guys that going on the same badge. Now you've got five bodies that you haven't accounted for. Right. You know. Yep. And and you know so try to try to explain it to them that way. Well, and if it came down to it and they just still wouldn't comply, then you know I'd pull their badge and write them up, and I'd I'd send the write up to their management, and it'd get kicked up, and you know. Right. Well, ultimately, um, you know, it, it's it's the uh, <clears throat> you mentioned it earlier when we we're talking. It, it's is the executive management on board when we're overseas? Right. What we mean by that would be like the colonels and the generals. Are they on board? The middle management would be your majors and your captains and and and, and other people. And, and they the, were hardly uh, ever on board. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but I'm. You know, and and sometimes it just comes down to personal relationships. Can you develop a personal relationship where they trust you, they like you, and even if they don't like you, they trust you and they know you're doing your job, and so they're right. going to say, you know what, I'll back you. That's fine. If you got a problem, 
come tell me and I'll take care of it. Um, <clears throat> but here in the U.S., you're right. That doesn't that that that's pretty hard. That's pretty difficult to get um, in the civilian sector. So it, it is a whole different thing. Um, and for that reason, I I tend to stray stay away from that kind of security. It's like yeah, no, that's all right. I I don't want to deal with it. Um, yeah. That's an HR problem, people. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and you know. Fortunately for me, I collected my first retirement check this week, so I don't have to worry oh, about nice. that anymore. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, speaking of which, it's about that time. Um, it is. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we've been at it for about ninety minutes now. Uh, <laughs> we we uh, bring this to a wrap here before long. Um, you know, geez, I want to retire too, but uh, uh, quasi retired, not not really retired, but well, that's that's kind of how I am too. I mean, I'm still teaching firearms classes and, and, you know, I'll still do the occasional security detail if I want to. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's not that I'm averse to it. You know, um, I get questioned a lot by it, um, sometimes by the wife, but it's like, you know, um, anyway, there's just a lot of things that got to line up just right. But, uh, so you made the transition, um, as, as a contractor back into what you're doing. So what, What's life like for you now? I mean, you're 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 you know pretty much do your own thing. You got your own thing going on. Um, was it all worth it? If you look back, you look back at it and say, "Yeah, I I did it all right, and it was all worth it." Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, I I, I do feel that way. Um, I may do a couple of things differently. Um, you know, like I said, I I got on on whips really late in life. I wish I'd done that a little earlier, but, Hmm. you know, I did it when the time was right, when I had the time in country and the experience and, you know, I was able to get, uh, to get into the program Hmm. and, you know, so honestly, I wish I would have started overseas contracting about, you know, 10 years earlier, five years earlier, you know, whatever would have been available, but I didn't. Right. So, you know, here we are. Uh, (laughs) You know, I'm the I'm the old fart on the contract every single time. Mm. You know, you know I gotta I gotta. I'm sure you then you've had this experience. I'm sure other guys have had it too that are listening. But you know, have you had the experience? And, and people, you know, they don't come right out and say it. Sometimes they will, but usually they they kind of you know gnaw around the edges a little bit, um, and you kind of get what they're saying, and, and you can kind of pick up on the vibes. You know, because you were an overseas private security contractor and you did this kind of security, you worked for that agency, and you, you know, they think that you think you're special and they really look down on you and they don't accept you and you really don't want, and they don't want to play with you. Have you had that experience? No, no, not really. I mean, I haven't put myself in a position where it was, you know, that much of a, of a measuring contest. Hmm. And, you know, I don't think I need to say the rest of it, but... <laughs> Um, no, the, the executive protective stuff I did when I got home, um, was all, you know, not all, most of it was pretty professional. Okay. Um, I worked for, um, I worked for a company. Um, we protected a, uh, a very well-known family. Um, I still can't disclose who they are to this day. Hmm. Um, but we traveled all over the world with them. Hmm. You know, I went to Hong Kong and Canada and, you know all kinds of places all over the United States. And they were, they were a client that probably didn't really need security, but it made them feel better. And, and we, we did it right. Um, Mm. 
you know, on, on one trip, I'd be on the advance team and I'd be there, you know, three, four days before they arrived. And we'd make sure that the hotels and the cars were there. <coughs> we would run the routes, you know, the stops we were going to make. And, and there were never any hiccups. Hmm. And if there was a hiccup, it was, um, it was dealt with quickly. Um, right. there was one, one particular time where I was, uh, I was the shadow. So I just followed everywhere they went, um, without them even knowing I was there. Hmm. And uh, we had contracted uh, a limo service that we had used in the past. You know, they'd been vetted. And the guy got stuck in traffic and because of a, a major accident. The freeway was just, it was closed, and there was no way he was going to get there. Hmm. So, you know, the team lead called me and said, you know, bring the truck up. And because we were prepared for that, I was able to get out of the vehicle, take off, you know, my little regular jacket, put on a suit coat, and the truck was already clean. You know, it already had water in it and i pulled up and you know got out hmm. we opened the doors and put them in and off we went you know so that was a that was a one example of things working right right and then i've worked for companies here around <clears throat> los angeles where it's like you know they I just there was an episode where you remember what happened overseas if if you left your weapon in a bathroom same thing that happens when it's in the military <laughs> yeah you get your ass handed to you and as a contractor you know it was aisle or window fish you know because you're going home yep right um i was working for a company in los angeles doing um uh, high value jewelry security in a, in a very well-known store and we had individuals that would come in and do jewelry transfers and this guy went in used the bathroom came out and uh, he was about to leave, and a 10-year-old kid walked out of the bathroom with his pistol in her hand and said, I think somebody left this there. Wow. <laughs> Guess what happened to him? Huh? Nothing. What? Nothing. Didn't even get a talking to. It's like, yeah, don't do that again. Make sure you, make sure you pick up your gun after you, after you go poo-poo. You know? That was it. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that has got to be one of the most embarrassing things. A, a, a quote-unquote professional could do. Yeah, if you do something like that and you're not embarrassed by it, you're just wrong. <laughs> wow. I mean, disgraced. I mean, I know I would be. I, I Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd be apologizing all over myself for something like that and, and no. uh, telling the guy, hey, I, I don't blame you if you don't hire me again, you know? No, it's just, you know, one of those things. Well, oops. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> let, so oops? Yeah, <laughs> really? uh, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm just, you know... Um, you know, but but you're talking about using going through our, our what we call a professional network. So you know, guys call you up, or you, we call them, we're talking, whatever, and one thing leads to another. And, hey, you know, are you available? Did you think about? Would you think about this? Would you think about that? You know, because th we're talking with guys, or you know, come in contact with guys that you know through a period of time, you know, kind of get a good feeling for each other, and you're you're referred, you're recommended. You know, so yeah. it, 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 it it's almost goes without questioning, not completely, but almost goes without question that, that you're squared away. You know, right. you show up on time when they meet you at the airport, you get up in the morning at the hotel and they meet them down there in the lobby and every, you know, it's like, okay, so far so good. All right. You know, um, you know, that's the, that's the difference. And so I guess for the guys that are listening that, you know, that were it's like, what do I do? You know, how do I do this? It's like, well, you probably know people, you just don't realize you know them. Right. So reach out to the people that you've come in contact with, that you know, that you've worked with, that you've trained with, 
that have worked in the civilian sector are working in the civilian sector and or know people in the civilian sector that are doing that and just, you know, talk with them. And when it comes up in conversation, if it doesn't, just, you know, ask them, hey, you know, what's going on? Do you know anybody that's hiring for this kind of work? And they might right. say, yeah, you've got everything you need, except you just need to go get this two-week course or, the, or whatever it is, um, or the certificate or what you know. And they might just say, hey, yeah, you're squared away. You're good to go. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I've been asked, you know, stuff done in Mexico. I've never done it. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's work all over the place. You know, higher sure. end security that pays, that pays pretty good money. Um, yeah. You know, so you just got to reach out to your network. Who do I know? Uh, you know, and just just start dialing for dollars, basically, is what it comes down to. You know, make it a telethon once a week. Just spend the day doing that. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that's part of it. But, but the other part is, um, you know, you get these guys, especially the younger guys, um, you know, they're, they're young fire pissers. They want to go and, you know, they want to do the, the tier one, you know, SEAL Team 6 crap. And, and you can't start there. You know, you've got to pay your dues. You got to go work some of the crappy static jobs and yep. you've got to get time in time. It's just like anything else, like in the service, you got to get time in rate before you get promoted. And, you know, so they'll go and they'll try for these, you know, high level travel security jobs and they get turned down because they haven't had the experience. They haven't had the, the, the time doing it. They don't have the proper training and then they get disillusioned. Right. And it's like, Oh, this is crap. You know, now what am I going to do? Right. Um, you know, just, start out start out in baby steps you know and and sometimes sometimes that might be the lobby of a of a high-rise hotel you know mm. well you know and, and that's another good point uh you know because uh i know that call it ego pride whatever you want to call it uh some guys will say well i'm overqualified i don't want to do that you know yada yada doesn't pay enough well you know you wouldn't be the first guy that mentioned that though dude you, you you're in the same industry but it's a different scenario it's a different place it's a different world you, you you're going to have to maybe you don't have to start at the bottom but you can't start at the top exactly um, you know i mean guys can guys do and and that happens but and that'll happen more frequently as you get like you said get more experience and more guys get to know you and they start recommending and referring you right um so yeah i, I think that's like anything else you gotta you gotta pay your dues yes right? you do um, you know, it's like I said, I, I wish I would have gotten into whips earlier, but if it hadn't been for, you know, the tour in Iraq and then the tour in Afghanistan, I never would have been able to, to get my bio approved. Right. You know? So. Right. Yeah. It, it's, um, yeah. And, and that's another, you know, and, and you got to question why you want to do it. I think that's another thing too. question why you right. want to do that kind of work. <clears throat> um, you, because if it's not something that you... You know, like sometimes I was, you know, people would ask me, it's like, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I don't really have a good answer. I'm not sure why I want to do it. Um, you know, and it wasn't, be and I say, but it's not because I'm seeing stars in my eyes or because, you know, I've got some fanciful notion. Um, and it's not because I want the money. I'm, I just think it'd be interesting. I think it'd be kind of fun. Right. You know. Right. It's like, it's next step. You know, what are we going to do next? Yeah. Yeah, you know, next challenge. And it's like, you know, and some of them were, you know, like, oh, um, I mean, you mentioned 
uh, whips or WPS a couple of times. And that is a pretty good challenge. I think for most guys, it is a pretty good challenge. Um, you know, a lot of guys I remember got pushed to the limits, you know, and uh, yeah. in one way or another, whether it was their cognitive ability to think on their feet, um, to comprehend, whatever, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't all physical, but uh, no, no, but some of it isn't. I mean, you know, we had guys over there that uh, they got dropped because of weapon squalls. Right. You know? uh, we had guys that got dropped because they couldn't pass the, the tests that they were giving on the different topics. Um, couldn't pass land nav. Um, you know, they couldn't drive. You know, it's all the, the thing with whips is it's it's either pass or fail. And you got to pass all the modules to pass. Right. And, and if you can't drive, if you can't, you know, uh, if you can't control a vehicle, you know, in, in high-speed maneuvers uh, and off-road and stuff like that, well, you're not going to pass. Um, if you can't shoot accurately, you're not going to pass. Right. Um, you know, it's just, it's all-encompassing. And, you know, you get some guys over there that are really super good at one thing, you know, great shooters. And shoot a 300 every time they look at a target board. <laughs> but, you know. They couldn't navigate their way out of a Walmart. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Um, yeah, well, and everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, you know. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of guys can do the whole thing, but they're better at this and not quite as good at that. And that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah, I was I was great at the medicine and 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 four O as a driver, and there was some other stuff that you know, I I I got by, but I got by you know the skin of my teeth. CQB, I'd never done it before. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I was kind of learning it on the fly. Well, yeah, but I'm saying those are things that, you know, with proper instruction and training and proper motivation and desire, you can, most guys can, can find, find it in them to do it. But, you know, it's just, it's like, go with what you can do with what you, what really, you know, gets your groove on, you know, and right. uh, surprisingly there's, you know, like, like you, for example, there's guys that, you know, medicine is it me. I don't like blood, man. <laughs> I don't even like get my finger pricked when I go to the doctor. It's like, no, nah, you're not sticking me with that. No. <laughs> yeah. like that, it hurts. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Plus, I don't like seeing that blood coming. It's like, that that blood's coming out of me, man. I, that, that that That's not good, you know. Yeah, that's not cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I've had, you know, had to put my hands in it. But it's, um, I'm just saying that, you know, so for the guys that are out there, the EMTs, the medics, paramedics, uh, hats off to you guys, man. Putting your hands in in that stuff, you know, it's like, yeah, um, you can have it, you can keep it. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's still a lot of contracting opportunities available. Um, I get emails all the time still, um, you know, and, and job notifications on LinkedIn and, and places like that. So it's it's still going on, just not to the level that it used to. And certainly not at the pay level that it used to be. Yeah, well, that yeah, um, and that's because the calling isn't quite there because we're not we don't have raging <clears throat> conflicts going on. But you know, exactly. Just give it another six or nine months. I have a pretty good feeling we're going to be yeah. right back in it. Um, but you know, but that I guess that was the other point I was trying to make. You know, when I was saying like, you know, find something that works for you, and maybe you never really considered it seriously. But in order to make it work, to get into it, to get back into it, to get to the next level, maybe you gotta do something different. Because when you, I mean, there are a lot of shooter jobs, and it's not 
this is not necessarily a plug for shooterjobs.com, although I just said it. But, you know, it looks like when you go out there and look, there's a lot of stuff out there. But uh, general stuff that, that just kind of floating around out there, there's a lot of call for medics, EMTs, first responders, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, so, you know, in addition to anything else you might be considering, if you want to get to that next level or maybe increase your chances, maybe getting your EMT basic is a pretty good start. I mean, I've known learn a number how, of guys who've done that quick two or three mm -hmm. week condensed course or learn to weld. I'm just, you know, trade schools, but I'm just talking yeah. about like in security. If a guy's in security, wants to go to the next level or he's coming out of the military, wants to go into security, you know, and you can't quite seem to get the job you're looking for. Man, there's always a call. I mean, every day I see something with the word EMT in it. It's like, wow. <laughs> if only well, yeah, I, and they, they changed a lot of the a lot of the um, restrictions on that as well. It used to be, you know, if you wanted to be a, a WPS medic, you had to be a paramedic. Hmm. And a couple of years ago, they started taking guys that um, that have the advanced EMT. Hmm. So you know, there's, but there's all kinds of work. You know, you just you kind of have to. You have to search for it, right? And and you have to find your motivation. You know, if you're just sitting around going, "Oh, I need a job," you know, it's probably not. It's not for you. You know, right? Well, um, yeah, motivation and what works for you, and it may be you might come to the conclusion that now or later, you know, maybe maybe private security really isn't for you. Um, right. You know, especially if, if, if we're talking security in a manner where it's more than making sure that the people that come through the front door at that local mall, um, you know, are wearing uh, footwear and not barefooted. You know, uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes people have crazy notions, but regardless, almost invariably, they all look to the guy or gal that's doing security work to be their savior, to be the rescuer or, or you know, uh, to, to be their protector, their defender. So, you know, if, mm -hmm. you, if you aren't up to the task, you're not doing anybody any favors by doing it. Yeah, um, if you're just, if you're just a, a, a warm body filling a uniform, you know, to make nine bucks an hour, um, yeah, I just don't even know what to say about that. Well, you know, and, and some people consider that security. Right. You know, and well, I, I look at them as, I always try to... Uh, when I do a security evaluation, you know, I'm really brutally honest with these companies that I do them for. And I tell them, you know, it's like your guys that are in the lobby, you know, in uniform with, without any sort of weapons. Cause they won't let them carry anything. They can't even carry a set of handcuffs. Hmm. Um, if I'm a bad guy coming in here, that's my first target. Heck yeah. Cause they're the guys that at least have a radio, you know, yep. or understand that they need to communicate. So they're, they're the first ones to go. Yep. Oh. oh yeah. So. Well, and that and that was something. Uh, and some jobs I've done where they wanted, you know, some uniform, some something to so that people could readily, visibly identify me as security. It's like sometimes I can kind of see that in certain scenarios and certain spots. I get that, but for the most part, no, because you know the reason you just mentioned. Because um, you know maybe well, maybe the average terrorist and average bad guy isn't that smart. But if I was out there looking for that, you know that. What you just said, man, be the first, take them out, you know? Um, well, I think it's mostly because they're not a deterrent, you know? You know they can't do anything. <laughs> and, well, and, and if you do that, you've set the stage, you set the president. Everybody's going to be freaked out, and they're yeah. going to be cowering and doing what you want them to do. No, yeah, no. Security security is, is not taking, you know, I, I, and again, I don't think that it's not necessarily 
always anyway, that, that the companies that want to do the hiring, it's not that they're not serious, they don't want real security. Oftentimes, it's somewhere between budgeting and what they can actually get, you know, because so many companies, that's what they offer. Well, everybody wants tier one. Everybody wants a Navy SEAL. But, you know, nobody wants to pay for it. Nobody wants to pay $1,000 a day or more, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yep. And, yep. And, and when you walk in and say, you know, I could put five security guards in here for 300 bucks a day, they're going, okay. <laughs> yeah, I saw something today posted somewhere where the pay rate was, uh, was uh, what they say? It was, a uh, I want to say, at first I thought it was a thousand something a day. And I went, oh, wow. Okay. Everybody's going to be jumping on that. And then I guess I didn't have enough coffee. And I looked at it and said, that's $175 per 24 hour day. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, it's like, what? You know, and then, and then add in the cost of gas and uh, uniform maintenance and all the other equipment you have to supply. And you're working for about nine cents an hour. Well, what, yeah, but whatever. I'm just saying, you know, okay, you know, I mean, there's there's plenty of guys and gals out there that are in the security business that, that'll take that, you know, because it, it's work, it's money, it's whatever. And, you know, maybe they, they glamorize themselves. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, it's – but, I, I mean, so there's a, there's a lot of things a, a guy or a gal can do if they're in security, want to get the next level. Um, right. Or if they're in the military coming out and they think they want to do security. But again, just do a head check. Just make sure that's what you want to do. And then ask around, ask some questions, find out about it and, and, you know, and then get your feet wet, you know, and see what happens. Either you like it or you don't, you know? Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, these, there's a lot of these schools around that, that you're supposed to be executive protection schools. Right? Oh, oh, um, oh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of guys that have gone through these schools, and then they're they're absolutely surprised that, you know, they're not on some billionaire's travel detail, you know, the first week out of class. It's mm. like, you know, you got to kind of look at the school and, and look at the area you live in. Yes, you know? um, yes. Is there a lot of EP work going on? There's a ton of EP work here in California. There mm. always is. There always has been. There always will be. Mm. Um, but you have to ask yourself. And, and it's the question I asked myself a couple of years ago, and the answer turned out to be no. Are you willing to do that type of work for this type of person? Mm. And, you know, I, I got to the point where it was, it was no longer palatable for me to strap on a gun and go and try to protect someone that wouldn't throw a glass of water on my head if my hair was on fire. Yeah. Well, you know, and I've so, heard that sentiment a lot from guys. I was, uh, and I was done. Yeah. And, and the other thing they said is what you hearkened at, which is um, there, you know, there tends to be that in not every state, but a lot of states. But the prime the prime states are New York, California, Florida, you know, th yep. th there's other states um, and certain. But, uh, you know, it's the large metropolitan areas that have a lot of business flights going in and out. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, the, getting back to those schools, um, you know, the problem is that they've somehow gotten themselves on on the roster to be, uh, you know, uh, valid for VA benefits, for VA educational benefits. Yeah, I've seen some of that. And, you know, these guys are going in, they're, they're burning up their VA benefits, you know, going to a school to get a certificate that's never going to get them a job. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. It's like the people going to college, getting their four-year degree, strapping on a $100,000 debt, and they end up flipping burgers because they can't find that job. Uh, well, I mean, you know, if you're... If your major is, you know, ancient Mesopotamian, <laughs> you know, women's gender studies, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> uh, yeah. But okay. no, you're right. And, <laughs> and, 
and and even working in aerospace, I can tell you that you know these these kids that graduate college with a, a degree in engineering, they're not an engineer for another five or six years. Oh yeah, well they thank, go through thank they you. go through a a mentorship program yes. and you know an on the job training program. It's not like you get out of college and like somebody's going to go okay you know go design me a bridge. Yeah, all right, this right. one looks good. You right. Know? Thank you. Um, and, that, and that's what we're talking about, experience and paying your dues. Okay, you know, yeah, you exactly. went and got your degree, you spent a lot of money and a lot of time, and you did a good job, you got straight A's or B's or whatever, or a mixture of A's and B's. Okay, great. I mean, excellent start. But the key word is start. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, what welcome, did I do for the last... Welcome to the easiest thing you've ever done in your life. Yeah. Now buckle up. <laughs> right, you know. Uh, yeah, just, you know, it's kind of like I've mentioned to my boys a few times, you know, when we, when we, when I say argue, we're not really arguing, but I sometimes have to remind them, it's like, you know, boys, uh, you know, what you see when you look around at your mom and I, um, it's the, and, and you and I have talked about this, but the accumulation of a lifetime, okay, right. we didn't just stumble into this, we didn't just come up with it after you guys were born, you became cognitive, okay, this is a lifetime of struggle, and work okay yeah exactly <clears throat> and you know as of this year um i went to boot camp 45 years ago this year wow so it's been it's been a couple of days <laughs> <laughs> do you still remember it every minute of it <laughs> i see i can't say that. i remember i mean it's just like my contracting stuff and, and my some things i remember vaguely some of it is like yeah like it happened yesterday and and but more and more of it's like ah, I, I i don't remember that <laughs> like, well, was i was i even there no I, I remember the important stuff i remember my company number i yeah. remember my company commander um hmm. i i remember a couple of guys that you know i was i was tight with you know during boot camp um that's it, you know, because I, I remember the faces of, of some of those guys in my platoon. I, I don't remember their names. I remember the nickname of one guy uh, in the fleet and a few guys, actually a few other guys that were in the fleet, but that's pretty much it. You know, and I've had guys yeah. ask me, well, how can you not remember the name of your lieutenant? It's like, because there were a lot of them. You know, yeah, there's, a, there's a bunch of them and I didn't care. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, we even in the Marine Corps back then when I was in, we, I wouldn't say we looked down on lieutenants, but, you know, especially if they were, you know, the gold bars. But they yeah, just you did. Well, yeah, you're right. We did. But, <laughs> you're right. you know, it's like I just I just read a joke yesterday. It's, uh, you know, the swabbies are all in the in the mess decks and, you know, the, the master chief is up there talking. He says, all right. Um, can somebody give me a good example of something useless? And an ensign raises his hand. And he says, thank you, ensign. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So, well, listen, we probably better close yeah. this out because my battery's about to turn red yeah, here, I think. Yeah, I got you. We're, yeah. Uh, so, for the folks that are listening, uh, Mike, can I get you to uh, uh, leave a parting gift of uh, sage advice to the people that are listening? Yeah, don't be stupid. <laughs> It's, um, you know, it sounds funny, but we all do stupid stuff. Yeah. Okay. Fortunately, I did all my stupid stuff before there was YouTube and the internet and all that. So there's absolutely no record of it. Right. But just keep it wired tight, man. You know, it's life is a, it's a long road and it can be a long, painful road if you make it that way. Right. But it can also be really rewarding. So, you know, figure out what you want to do. Um, and and don't let anybody tell you you can't do it because i have i've had people my whole life telling me 
uh, you're too old to do this. You know, you're too skinny to do that. You're, you know, you're too tall for this. Hmm. Whatever. It's like, doesn't matter. You know, I have people tell me, what are you crazy? You're going to go to whips at, at 54. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> huh. I'm in shape. I can do it. And I was in shape and I did it. You know, there were guys in their thirties that were dropping out. Wow. Whatever. Right. Now, having said <clears> that, <throat> when I came home, I was a bruised up sore turd for about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but, but you, you did know, it. You did it, man. I did it. Yep. So, you know, just don't let anybody, don't let anybody, you know, set your, set your trajectory for you. Do it yourself. Nice. And if it gets, if it gets rough and, and you're feeling lost, um, reach out to someone. Don't, don't take the whole alpha male, you know, bite the bullet. I can do this on my own. You know, strongest thing you could ever do is ask for help. Wow. You know that that is, that is a true sentiment. I mean, <clears throat> you know, um, I like that. All right, Mike Ritchie, my friend. Um, so stick around when we're done here, if you will. Um, and then uh, I want to thank you, uh, my guest, Mike Ritchie, for making time again to share his experiences with us on Oconus the Contractor's life. Uh, and I want to thank all of the patriots and warriors who've done their time and service to this and other countries. Uh, wherever that was and however that uh, came to be. Uh, and I want to yeah, thank... Except all- Canada. Except for... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Heck with those guys. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to thank all the people that um, I've come to know over the years who have helped to make this podcast what it is. Um, and I want to thank you, the listening audience, um, for taking time out of your day to tune in and listen to this episode uh, because, you know, honestly, without you, uh, none of it really matters. Uh, so remember, folks, the grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. Stay safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real.